Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your weekly look at what's going on in the world of EBM and COVID-19. This week, we are talking about the sheer volume of information flying at journals and then to, to readers. We'll give you a little update on remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine. And if you listen right to the end, um, like our loyal listeners do, then you'll hear some feedback from a listener um, who's taking Carl to task about averages. As always, we're joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen McDonald and Carl Hendigan. Helen, um, we haven't introduced you for a while. Could I get you to introduce yourself in case anyone doesn't know who you are? I'm Helen McDonald. I'm the UK research editor for the BMJ and a resting GP. And Carl. Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM and an Urgent Care General Practitioner. Yes. You said that with a sigh there, Duncan, as though it's so, like... uh... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> We've heard that so many times before. So, Helen, this week you have been on holiday you needed a holiday because of all the stuff coming into the journal. But we couldn't keep you away from COVID entirely. You've been looking at remdesivir. How has your holiday gone? Well, it's been quite quite different to my my day job I've been uh, I've been with my kids and my in-laws where I'm staying at the moment on the farm and we've been having uh, some lambs arriving so uh, it's been a different kind of uh, clinical perspective but uh, you did manage to grab a chat with your boss our uh, head of research at the BMJ I did. Well, we all know that clinical workload has altered substantially, um, whether it's planning for a new disease that we don't know very much about or consulting in strange ways using um, much more remote methods like uh, telephone consultation and video consultation. And last week, Carl, I think after we stopped recording, was asking us how our work had changed at the journal. And I decided to catch up with Elizabeth to share her thoughts on that with me. And for those who don't know her, Dr. Elizabeth Loder is Head of Research at the BMJ. Well, my first impression is that the number of papers we are receiving, not only the number of research papers, but the number of other sorts of papers that the journal is getting, has gone up enormously. And it's unlike anything I've experienced during my time as a journal editor. In the past, there have been all kinds of important things that happened, but nothing as sustained and all-encompassing as COVID-19. So I do have you know worries about the quality of some of the research that's being done. A lot of it seems to be hastily done, opportunistic research. Among it, of course, are very important papers and trying to sift through to find the important papers that will be relevant and useful to our audience is an enormous challenge. If you had asked me a month ago how we were coping, I would have been very optimistic and said that we were coping well. I think we still are managing to deal with what comes in, but it's getting increasingly difficult. People have not been able to uh, leave work at the usual hours. People are working on weekends, on evenings, and I think most of us are happy to do so because we see how important this is. But uh, it's not clearly sustainable for as long as the pandemic is going to be going on. And it feels it feels like it complements some of the things that are happening in practice. Everyone 
is seeing a very different spectrum, well, a totally new disease that they know very little about. Um, and also having to work, as you say, in different ways. And I've been struck by some of the study designs that we see coming through now are not things that we're that used to um, processing. So to me, as one of the handling editors, sometimes that's felt quite challenging having a, a new disease and also looking at content, which sometimes we are less used to seeing. Lots of, we've seen lots of case series, um, perhaps stuff on transmission studies. I don't know what your reflections are on 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 the types of research that you've been looking at. Yes, you're exactly right. Under ordinary circumstances and for well-established medical problems and disorders, we ordinarily would not be interested in small case series or largely descriptive cohort studies, but that changes when we have a new illness. And it also changes as as time goes on. Uh, you know, there are papers that we published early on that now would not be of interest. And it is the case sometimes that we get research papers and say, gosh, if this had come in a month ago, we might have been interested, but time and events have moved on. What about, what do you think about preprints? Because this whole need for speed there's there's an ability to kind of just get information out into the public domain it seems now you can kind of put it on a preprint server but they come with a lot of cautions that this is mostly for scientists you shouldn't really be using these as a a decision maker or a clinician or a patient at this stage because they haven't been through the steps that a peer review process would give um have you reflected on the utility of preprints and balancing that with fast track processes or just the role I guess that journals have in in looking after evidence for people well certainly um, med archive which was started shortly before the pandemic has rapidly become uh, very very busy and in hindsight I think there was no better time to start a new preprint server as you know BMJ is one of the partners in med archive and in general I'm very um, positive about the move towards preprint servers. That's not to say that there aren't potential pitfalls. And I think we have seen some of those play out during the pandemic. We have seen preprints covered in newspapers or other publications, perhaps without adequate warnings about the preliminary nature of the information, perhaps without the critical scrutiny that one would like to see applied even by media science or medicine writers. Oh, I, I feel for Elizabeth there, and, I, and my concern is her problem's going to be getting worse in the next few weeks, not better. With a colleague of mine, Tom Jefferson, we had a look on PubMed at, at, at what's been going on here, and we looked over the last 50 years, from 1970 up to December 2019, and there'd been 68,000 articles with influenza in the title were published, uh, published and indexed on PubMed. About 12 times the 5,500 coronavirus publications over the same period. So I think it's fair to say we knew a lot about influenza, not much about coronavirus. But I just wanted to say, as that changed, because if you now put in to PubMed coronavirus and you do this square brackets with TI for title or COVID, in fact, you get 15,486 articles indexed since the 1st of January this year. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, look, the, the thing is, you have to read about 100 articles a day to keep up to date. 
But to be honest with you, it's getting worse because when we wrote the article last week, there were 13,847. There's another 1,600 articles indexed this week alone on COVID on PubMed. Well, maybe we can highlight some of the ones of most interest, Carl, because you and I have picked out a couple. And the one that I focused on, or the cluster that I focused on, were around remdesivir, which, as as listeners will know, is an issue that we've been following quite closely. Um, it's one of the hopeful drugs for COVID, amongst others like lopinavir, ritonavir, interferon beta, tocilizumab. I never know how to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and some other things ending in ear and hydroxychloroquine. Um, which seems perhaps a bit less promising now than it did. And we recently talked about this preliminary inconclusive trial, which was in The Lancet in a previous episode. And everyone was waiting as we were getting a bit cross ourselves, Carl, about this um, US study, which had been announced or some results had been announced in a press conference. And then the the paper had yet to emerge with the with the information and we now have that so there are a series of um, studies which will include the links in the in the podcast information in the New England Journal of Medicine a research paper in fact two research papers um, and an editorial offering some commentary around that which I think is fair to say are substantially more cautious than perhaps those initial press conferences were suggesting there's a bit more uncertainty there and and sort of modest differences. The editorialist, for example, concluded by saying the findings are preliminary and are to be followed by more complete gathering of the data and full reporting according to the study register. For example, there are 28 secondary outcomes listed on the study register and and we don't see uh, very many of those in, in this preliminary paper that's come out. So of the results that are now out there, we know that this uh, US study randomized about a thousand people um, who were in hospital with evidence of respiratory involvement and COVID and that they were comparing remdesivir to placebo. The primary outcome or the change, the modified primary outcome was reduction in time to recovery. Um, What does that mean? A bit more clarity on that. So they define that as during the 28 days after enrollment, whether the patient is one, out of hospital with no limitations of activity, two, out of hospital but has some limitations of activity and or home oxygen requirement, or three, still in hospital, but sort of primarily for infection control reasons perhaps. So I'm kind of characterising it as, as medically fit for discharge. And that outcome was switched from 14 days to 28 days, um, which the authors explain in their papers because it became clear that COVID was a more protracted illness. However, looking at the study register, it does seem that there there was some other change in terms of the nature of the outcome. So the initial primary outcome had also included the percentage of subjects reporting on a seven-point ordinal scale at 15 days, um, one of seven outcomes, which included death, being hospitalised on invasive ventilation or ECMO, being hospitalised on non-invasive ventilation, being hospitalised requiring oxygen, being hospitalised not requiring oxygen, or the categories that we just mentioned previously. What they find with the new outcome is that um, for people with remdesivir, it took a median of 11 days to reach recovery, whereas people who were given placebo took 15 days. And they say that there's a sense that the timing of the drug may matter because the benefit 
was largely in patients with severe disease rather than people with mild to moderate disease who were in hospital where there didn't seem to be a particular difference. Importantly, there was also a trend towards lower mortality amongst people who received remdesivir. So that was 7.1% compared to people who received placebo where death was 11.9%, but that didn't reach statistical significance. And then in the link paper, there's also a comparison of giving five days worth of treatment versus 10 days worth of treatment. And they conclude that five days looks like enough. And Carl, I know you had some thoughts last time we spoke on that outcome and concerns around the switching of the outcome. Um, Has seeing the full paper reassured you in any way? Yeah, I guess where we are in the problem here is, look, to get a trial done in this period of time so quickly is really important. And, And you have to say, well done for that. But what happens here when we see this finding, which is important in terms of its size, a 5% reduction in mortality is hugely significant. We want to understand whether that that is driven by bias. And immediately you have the change of outcome, you introduce bias. And they say, they looked at everyone's status on day 15, but because people's disease was progressing much longer, they changed that. It, It can sometimes make logical sense to do that. But I think I would be much more reassured if they'd have kept the trial going. And I think we need urgent verification of these results in a second study. Because I think one of the keys about that is if we don't do that, we may be lost in this world of going, is this due to bias with an important outcome? But we're just not quite sure. Yeah, one of the interesting things is that, that remdesivir is still being studied, isn't it, in, in several um, ongoing studies, which might give us more information. Um, another thing which might interest you, Carl, is that we have um, triggered one of our rapid recommendation articles on the use of remdesivir in covid Um, And anticipating that it's not just going to be remdesivir, that there may be other treatments of interest or there may be issues around the comparative effectiveness of remdesivir if indeed that is considered to work compared to another treatment that might work in the future. That process will be underpinned by a living network meta-analysis which will look at a whole variety of um, treatments for COVID-19 and at the emerging randomized control trial evidence for and against those drugs because i think there are some other data that for example the study that um is looking at the dosing that there is a little bit more data in there and a, a bit more mortality data i guess and we do have that lancet study that we talked about previously so perhaps by pooling some of these studies we might get a somewhat clearer answer yeah i guess the sort of weirdest thing about this trial did you pick up on the that the They had enrolled all of the patients, but they hadn't followed them up for their entire course yet because they stopped it early, didn't they? With with full outcomes only available for about 69% of the patients. Oh, I didn't pick that up. Tell us more about that. They met the primary outcome, which was the change in primary outcome in the ACTT1 trial. And when they reported it, they stopped it. And the committee, and it's weird to get it to publication. But about another 14 days would have got everybody through with all the mortality data. So they've just stopped collecting the data on the people who were still in it? Well, I don't, I don't know what's clearly happening there, but that's the thing that just doesn't make sense to me because 
at that point, you stop the trial, you censor the data, and then you unblind it and you report it. And that's the problem with that, um, that approach, in effect. Because whatever you're doing from that point on is unblinded, isn't it, within mm. terms of any future analysis. True. And I think that's the most disappointing issue in terms of where we're at. We are basically... The pandemic, we're in the midst of it. There's a sense of urgency. Let's give them the be benefit of the doubt to get the data out there and publish it. But actually, another 14 days would have got all the mortality data. That would have been hugely reassuring if it had been statistically significant and probably got the drug out there quicker. So what's happened here is you've got the publication out there quicker. You're not going to get the treatment out there quicker. There's going to be a delay. And we see this a lot because of our uncertainty when we have industry trials, biases introduced, and we're just not quite sure. And this is our major issue now. It's interesting forward. you bring up the industry thing because this US study is not billed as an industry study. So it's not directly funded by the manufacturer of the drug, as I understand it. But as you look into the ties between those running the trial and the manufacturer... So when you read, for example, the declarations of interests of the authors, it's notable that there are financial ties. So, for example, there's an author who is a direct employee of Gilead, who's the manufacturer of the drug. And there were another six other authors who have some kind of financial relationship, be that for advisory board work, research grants, other sorts of grants or travel from the manufacturer. And I think some people are increasingly thinking, well, that's not truly independent. Okay, the manufacturer wasn't directly doing everything, but we need to go further and, and sever those ties altogether. It's not a shade of grey here, is it? It's an all or nothing. You can't be independent and have six members on your team who are funded by the industry. I think what this ends up with us going is saying these are promising results, but because of these issues, they need to be replicated before we can be sure they are true. Uh, did they warrant use of Redemethyr? Possibly in some patients while waiting for further research. What about the living aspect, Carl? I mentioned that we were going to do this living network meta-analysis and as I was talking to Elizabeth, we touched on this issue as well. Should we hear more from her? I think the pandemic has really made it clear that there's a need for some sort of modification to the usual process of evidence synthesis. Evidence is accumulating so rapidly during the pandemic. And the idea is to have a living systematic review where periodically the authors commit to going back, searching again for any new evidence that has emerged since the original review was published and updating the review. Now, the Cochrane collaboration has done this and has pioneered this. Traditional journals have been a bit slower to adopt this in part because there are a lot of practical problems in doing this. There's the problem of version control. There's the problem of perhaps changing authorship. Uh, there's the problem of the resources that the journal and the authors need to devote to all of this. So you're right. Um, this has all brought into very sharp focus the need for some kind of process that gets away from the static review that traditional journals publish and moves a bit towards something that is living and, and changing over time. There is a saying that you should never let a crisis go to waste. So maybe this is in one way <laughs> that journals are going to alter.
And the level reviews are interesting. I think what you've got to be careful of is a tendency to follow the evidence. So if you don't pre-specify what the important outcomes are, you might start to do what the trials do and start to move your goalposts a little bit to say, well, we were interested in mortality, but now we're going to look to time to recover it. So all you do is amplify the problems of the trials. I really would like some setting out of the critical outcomes. And obviously, death is a really important outcome here. But actually, the more objective measures like length of stay, all of these important aspects in the reviews. The second aspect is, I think, it is still a problem of keeping them up to date. And, it, and, and, and I wonder when Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia is going to come in on this problem and start to say, actually, there's a radically new way of doing this that is much more out there in the open <laughs> and we can start to put the evidence together and i think that won't be long before we see that sort of initiative coming forward well you'll have to see what you think carl of our new of our project on the covid treatments because i have been giving some substantial thought <laughs> to how to how we can present it and how we can allow it to update or at least acknowledge that we've seen changes in the evidence, even if it isn't yet fed into the numbers. So it'll it, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And and I think you're right on the outcomes. And and the, I think the benefit of us doing it linked to our rapid recommendation process is that there are a panel of healthcare professionals, a spectrum of healthcare professionals, and including patients and the public involved in defining what the important outcomes are. Now, obviously, this is going to be a huge network meta-analysis um, and we can't have tens and tens of outcomes and that's probably a good thing and I hope it will help those people on the panel choosing the outcomes really focus on the ones that are the most important to healthcare providers and patients and the public. So what are the things we've sort of seen in this outbreak? So getting the evidence out there is not a problem. There's huge amounts of evidence. There's huge amounts of data. There's huge amounts of visualizations. In fact, what we're seeing is a need now for sort of skills of people who can look at the evidence, appraise its quality, put it into context, and then communicate that to a wider audience. And I, I think this is a, a new arena for lots of people to really go into the sort of evidence communication area, so that particularly the public the media, the policy can understand better what actually is happening. My concern is there's very few people out there who are thinking about that because they're all more concerned about getting an article published in the BMJ. Yeah, back to the problem of uh, incentives in uh, academia, I suppose. Yeah, there was a final issue I was reflecting on with Elizabeth, um, maybe a problem of academia, maybe just a problem of careers and life in general, was the gender disparity that we've seen during COVID-19. We found it hard or harder than usual, I would say, to find female guests to come on and talk to us. So it's, it's really nice to hear Elizabeth's voice this week. Elizabeth had some closing thoughts on that. I mean, we at the BMJ and I think other high-profile medical journals have been very concerned about the fact that women traditionally have been underrepresented among authors in important papers. They've been underrepresented as editorialists. Um, they've been underrepresented in just about every other aspect of the scientific publishing endeavor. Now, this isn't true in all specialties, but it tends to be true in many specialties, in many journals. 
I've observed, and there have been a number of things written about this too in the popular press and blogs. Um, you can see examples on Twitter. If you look, I've, I've been concerned, and I know other editors are concerned too, that all of this seems to have been aggravated and amplified by the COVID crisis, that um, women perhaps because they have a lot of domestic responsibilities with children home from school and everybody working at home, seem to have been less able to get research published. They seem, um, in my estimation, to be far less often quoted in news stories or other publicity related to the COVID crisis. They seem to appear less often as commentators when you look at news programs or other things. Um, Across the board, I see women falling behind during the crisis to an extent that is really concerning and reminds me of the way things were several decades ago. We're doing what we can to try to help at the journal level because, of course, journals are responsible too. We're trying to come up with lists of women who might be qualified to be editorialists. We're trying very hard to make sure we invite uh, a number of female reviewers when we get papers because, of course, reviewers are often asked to do editorials. Um, We're doing what we can. Uh, but it is clearly a problem that's been intensified by the crisis. That's the closest I have heard Elizabeth to a rant. She's possibly the calmest yeah. person I've ever met. Well, um, I'm not sure I have any solutions, but I'm just going to give out a shout to some of the great people I work with. Margaret McCartney, Inside Health, Helen MacDonald on Talk Evidence, Deborah Cohen, Newsnight, Ruth Davis, CBM, all amazing people of what they do in their jobs. And it's a pleasure for me to work with them. And I think uh, working with great people and there's loads of great talent out there. Um, And I would say that because I'm completely biased because I've got two girls who are my daughters. (laughs) I was going to say, and you uh, you didn't mention the one woman who uh, has been doing a lot of, of the research and, and commentary, Trish Greenhalgh. Oh, yeah, and Trish Greenhalgh is doing an amazing job there and actually is putting out evidence reviews right, left and centre. So, yeah, definitely lots of really good, and I think all of them share a great trait in being good communicators, which I said there's a shortage of. And we would like to hear from them. So if you do yeah. have some uh, interesting evidence perspectives on COVID, um, I'm obviously doing a bad job of finding you. So please find me or Duncan or Carl <laughs> or get Absolutely. you on the show. And that also goes when it comes to commenting on what we've spoken about, because uh, we do hear from listeners sometimes. And actually, we've been mostly hearing from men. Um, and it was two men this week who got in touch, Ed and Jonathan, Jonathan got in touch and said, I was listening to Talk Evidence today and Carl stated that if peak deaths were on the 8th of April and therefore the peak infection would have been 21 days before. This is not strictly true as it's a skewed distribution curve so the mean of 21 days would not give you peak infections. Well, look, um, maybe this is me having to tighten up my language. What's the complaint, Carl? I think it's the use of averages. And in terms of averages, when you're talking about time from hospital admission to death or time from infection to admission, when you say averages, you could mean one of a couple of different things. You could mean the mean or the median. And one of the issues about the mean is it can be more 
affected by extreme values. So, for instance, if you have some people who take 100 days to die, they'll really affect the mean. So what you tend to use in this data, because it's not normally distributed, is the median. And when I'm saying averages, I am making lots of assumptions when we're lacking data. And generally in these situations, when you're talking from time of infection to time to admission to time to death, I'm referring to medians in my mind, but I didn't make that clear. But it's interesting, we're starting to get bits of data that allow us to understand what's going on. So, for instance, a sample paper, 20,000 admissions, is allowing us to understand the median time from admission to death. It is a little under seven days in younger people, and it seems to be a little bit over seven days in elderly patients. And that's a median as opposed to a mean, because some people will take 50, 100 days maybe in hospital to die, and that would skew the average if you use the mean. Yeah, it's really interesting. This is one of the conundrums trying to work out when it was. So uh, looking at the data now, it's looking about six to seven days for the median between the date of death and the admissions. Going back before that, it's four to five days for the median from point of symptoms to admission so now we're about 13 14 days and then there's a pre-symptomatic phase when you get the infection and then when you get your symptoms and that range is somewhere between one and seven days and nobody can really answer that one of where the median is because if you're asymptomatic you can't tell so i think um my estimate's not that far out it could be a little less it could be a little more but I think as we go along and accumulate more data, I'll be able to come down and narrow you down to a sort of date. But to be honest, it will always be skewed in some way because there is a bit of the information that we don't quite understand, which is that asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic phase. Mm. I was very impressed by how closely Ed and Jonathan were listening to the podcast to pick you up on that and if you out there are, are listening to this and have heard something that we've said that you want to take issue with or if there is something that you would like us to look into on your behalf then do get in touch um helen and carl are on twitter and you can also go to bmj.com slash podcasts to find out how to drop us an email so you've heard about um, remdesivir again this week and uh, there's been yet again hydroxychloroquine in the news and we will be covering that a little bit next week. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. So until next week, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there. <laughs> <laughs>